Hello and welcome to the Talkie Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at the University of Melbourne. In today's episode, we'll discuss Indonesia's presidency this year of the Group of 20 Intergovernmental Forum, or the G20, comprising 19 of the world's major economies, along with the European Union. Indonesia's presidency comes as the forum is divided over Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with Western finance officials walking out of a G20 meeting in April when Russian delegates were speaking. Facing calls to exclude Russia from the G20 Leaders' Summit in Bali in November, Indonesia instead opted to extend an invitation to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, despite Ukraine not being a member of the grouping. Indonesia's priority issues for its G20 presidency are global health architecture, sustainable energy transition, and digital transformation, under the overall rubric of Recover Together, Recover Stronger. But what effect will the war in Ukraine have on Indonesia's ability to pursue this agenda, and how might the presence of Putin and Zelensky in Bali if both men attend, shape the leaders' summit. How important in any case is the G20 to the Indonesian government and the powerful political business interests within the country? To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Dr. I. Gede Wahyu Wichaksana, Senior Lecturer in the Department of International Relations at Universitas Ayalanga in Surabaya. Wahyu, thanks so much for joining us on Talkie Indonesia today. You're welcome. And it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, can I start by asking you, Indonesia's former President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono especially prized Indonesia's G20 membership. He said it gave Indonesia a seat at the table to discuss the global economic order rather than being stuck on the outside looking in. But what about under the current Jokowi administration, how important is G20 membership and indeed this year's leadership of the G20 to the Indonesian government? Well, to understand uh, the importance of G20 for Jokowi's and Jokowi's foreign policy, we should clearly understand the difference between the objectives of foreign policies uh, under Yudhoyono and, and Jokowi. Yudhoyono claimed himself as a foreign policy president, and he clearly knew what he must do in foreign diplomacy. And he himself conducted diplomacy very well, and accompanied by his visionary and highly able foreign minister, uh, Martin Atalagawa. I'm, I'm not a proponent of, of Yudhoyono's foreign policy ideas or, or practices, but but I acknowledge his brilliancy in, in foreign affairs. And Jokowi began his foreign policy by taking emphasis on what he called pro-people diplomacy. Uh, what Indonesia does in international stage must bring the most benefits for the people. It was in, in the early stages of, of Jokowi's months in office, 
and uh, foreign minister Ratno Marsudi, the current uh, foreign minister, implemented what called as more practical diplomacy. So uh, Jokowi choose what forum that Indonesia could earn the most benefits and it must directly benefit the people. Now, the question is, what is the real benefit of G20 for the Indonesian people? I noticed that Jokowi's foreign policy changes in his second or third years and he actually started to follow in Yudhoyono's footsteps, making presence in high-profile regional and global diplomatic fora. And then Jokowi start to talk about Indonesian initiatives for non-traditional issues like gender emancipation, climate change, and other things. And and in in the in the coming G20 summit, officially Indonesia uh, wanted to promote clean energy, uh, equality in in global health management, and then we talk about uh, of course uh, reforming the global economy or economic order. But what I suggest is it is just the formal agenda. The more substantive for, for the current government is to serve the long-standing relationship between oligarchs and, and uh, Indonesia's foreign policy uh, bureaucracy. That foreign policy uh, is used to facilitate the interests of powerful political economic actors. And under Jokowi's government, there are rising some younger generation conglomerates, and they support Jokowi. In, in Jokowi's second term, he said in his inaugural speech for the second term, he said that he wanted to, to improve the productivity of Indonesia's digital economy, uh, uh, millennial businesses and and uh, so on it means that what he's going to bring to the g20 or the significance of g20 is to serve this growing economic trends in indonesia although he might talk about about world peace or talk about indonesia's plan and the ongoing construction of, of the new capital city talk about uh, regional stability and others but the most important for Jokowi is to promote to internationalize domestic capitals expand more markets for Indonesia's uh, products particularly related to the growing influence of younger generation conglomerates now I mean there's a lot to unpack there in that answer but I think it's a fascinating point you make about a link between Indonesia's foreign policy and the interests of oligarchs, these, as you said, politico-business figures who control a, a disproportionate amount of wealth within Indonesia and as a result, a great deal of political power. You've drawn, though, a contrast between two generations of oligarchs, sort of the established oligarchs who... Uh, I guess when we look at the scholarship of people like Vedi Hadiz and others, we've seen arguments that they favour trade protectionism and this younger set of oligarchs in the digital economy 
do those two generations of oligarchs have very different economic interests and how will that play out at the G20? I think so. The older generation, they monopolize domestic economy. They get privileges, political protection, even legal protection from the government. They master sectors like mining, infrastructure, agriculture, but they could not expand the capitals abroad. If we compare Indonesia with Australia, Indonesia with Malaysia, or some regional countries, the volume of Indonesian capitals overseas are still much less than what the neighboring countries' businesses have done. The character of the old oligarch is they prefer to maximize the monopoly of the local markets instead of internationalizing the capital. Perhaps Jokowi, who is not part of the oligarch, he's a newcomer, he's a populist who is more in favor of the younger generations. And I think he will focus more on the digital economy for the unicorn industries. You know, some of his ministers and close advisors in the palace are young conglomerates. And they they do not struggle or fight for domestic monopolies, but they, they are more courageous to expand businesses, uh, linkages, and even political influence abroad. The choices of diplomats for ambassadors' positions are determined by their uh, capacity or ability to support this business. Uh, you can see some famous celebrities or business, young businesses are in, in, in the ambassadorial positions now. So we, we can closely see the tighten relationship between business and foreign policy. And in terms of, of the G20, it is strategic because, let's see, over the last 10 years, China is Indonesia's number one trading partner. Although U.S. is still an important, the second important partner, but Chinese capitals in Indonesian new generation of conglomerates are quite large and most of them have strong relationship with, with China. So G20 is, is, is a strategic forum where Jokowi can promote the interest of the digital economy and what, whatever uh, the younger conglomerates do currently. And also in terms of infrastructure, different from Yudhoyono, Jokowi is more aggressive in building infrastructure. And these projects are occupied by some old conglomerates or let's say uh, some old business links. But the younger generation are rising. They do more, uh, they, they try to, to get more accesses in, in this sector, the infrastructure and energy especially. Uh, you know, some, some new names in Indonesia's energy businesses are quite young and, and they start to move new concept of doing business more on digital high technology instead of practicing the old one which are uh, based on 
human resource. So, I mean, you, you've set out perhaps the most important economic interests that the Indonesian government is likely to pursue at the G20 are around the digital economy, opening up new markets for Indonesia. Now, I mean, Indonesia is leading the G20 this year. It is hosting the, the Leaders' Summit, of course, in Bali later in the year, but it isn't at present one of the larger countries if we measure by size of economy in the G20. Uh, I think it would be firmly in the bottom half, much as most people would see its economy likely to continue to grow rapidly for some time into the future. Given it's not currently one of the bigger players in the G20, how is Indonesia likely to try to push through its agenda and and how much of a challenge does it have in doing that? I think Indonesia's good relationships with most of of the G20 powers, uh, it's most realistic modality to exploit. Uh, Indonesia has no problem with other G20 countries compared to China or Russia who are in competition with other great powers of the G20. Indonesia is relatively accepted by others. If we classify G20 into two clusters, the great powers and and the middle powers, Indonesia are part of the middle powers. And Indonesia has strong connections with other middle powers of the G20. And also Indonesia are accepted by all of the great powers, including Russia, China, and uh, and the US uh, particularly. And this is why Jokowi will project his agenda in the G20. And yeah, is it a strategic forum for him and and for his his regime to promote his economic agenda? If, if I can classify the economic agenda, the, the normative and the real agenda. So uh, the real one is more important. The normative, I think, we can easily see uh, the commitments from conference to conference, but the real one is, is more important for Jokowi, as I, I say repeatedly. And uh, another point is, of course, this ongoing uh, geopolitical situation driven by COVID-19 and, of course, the war in Ukraine, the more polarized global order, global politics, uh, not because of ideologies, but by geoeconomic and geopolitical interests. And in this context, Jokowi needs to ensure that Indonesia will not be the victim of these <laughs> global contestations. Sure, sure. No, I mean, it, it's an interesting point to raise. You know, certainly, as you did before, you can divide the G20 into the smaller set of major powers and and the larger set of middle powers that are within the grouping, but quite apart from the controversies around, I guess, both the origins and the the handling of COVID-19 that we've seen play out in the geopolitical arena over the past couple of years. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has already spurred a walkout of various Western officials at at a G20 meeting in the US. It's seen also talk that Western nations may boycott the Leaders' Summit in Bali, which ultimately spurred the Indonesian government to invite the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to the forum as well. I guess what has been Indonesia's strategy to avoid, in your words, becoming the victim 
of that sort of contestation. Let me explain a bit more elaborative on this point. I want to start from the doctrine of Indonesian foreign policy called independent and active foreign policy. Uh, the, the true meaning of independent and active foreign policy to me is independent means Indonesia decide and conduct foreign policy according to or based on, on its national interest. So no dictates, no influence from external power. So shortly, I want to say free means Indonesia decide on its own. And active means Indonesia should not be watcher, but player or even director in the ongoing global politics or regional architecture building or what whatsoever. So Indonesia does not stay quiet. Indonesia has to do something to pursue its interests. And how the changing governments implemented this principle, it is not about neutrality. Neutrality, which means passive. Indonesia is active. Sukarno developed non-alignment. Non-alignment does not mean passive. Sukarno has a position. For instance, how Sukarno struggle to integrate West Papua? And Sukarno approach, and Sukarno was backed by the Soviet Union. At that time, Indonesia was the largest and the strongest navy in global south, supported by the Soviet Union. And for this connection, Indonesia could integrate West Papua. I couldn't imagine if, if Indonesia wasn't supported by uh, the Soviet Union. West Papua is not part of our country today. And this is non-alignment with a position. Suharto did the same when Indonesia was pressured by the West on the issue of Istimor. Suharto dissolved IGGI, Intergovernmental Group on Indonesia, because he, he did not like it. And, and Indonesia was non-aligned because it is not because of other countries interest or ideologies, but this is because this is for Indonesian interest. And the problem started in the reform era governments when they think that non-alignment or non-block is the end of foreign policy, not the means of foreign policy. It is a goal that we have to achieve. We have to be neutral in any cases. It is mistaken for me. It is wrong non-block or non-alignment is the means of foreign policy to get the goal, a particular goal which is defined by our national interest. My perception, my, my perspective is, is quite realist, but it is a fact. It is a matter of fact for poor men foreign policy like, like what Indonesia is conducting. We are not economically and military powerful like Australia or, or China or India, Japan and others. So that's why Indonesia should has its own position, its strategic modalities, both must be exploited. And beside non-alignment, Indonesia has a strategic position, a strategic location in the crossroads of Indian and Pacific Ocean. And Indonesia came with Indo-Pacific outlook three years ago. And where is it now? And 
and the jokowi this geopolitical vision is uh, gone in his first term we still had global maritime fulcrum and uh, when when jokowi declared this idea in east asia summit in myanmar many appreciated although there there were some uh, negative responses saying that indonesia is going to pursue more aggressive foreign policy and so on and in fact jokowi focused more on maritime economy and the modernization of its naval forces of indonesian uh, navy but now we have no strategic geopolitical doctrine and for and, and vision to hold to anchor in foreign policy and one consequences of this is happen in the ukraine crisis but indonesia could not express its clear position in hours after uh, russian aggression in ukraine indonesia abstained did not say anything but in un assembly for indonesia joined the, the chorus to condemn russia and now indonesia invited Vladimir Putin, after got pressure from Western allies, U.S. allies, Indonesia invited Zelensky, and it is really ambivalent. And what Indonesia need to do is to explain this position. What Indonesia wanted from this seemingly mediatory stance in the conflict, what is Indonesian concept? If Indonesia has a concept to mediate. between Russia and Ukraine at least we can Indonesia can withstand from pressures from from influences or infiltration of 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 other actors in the G20 but unfortunately we we have no concept and let me return to my point the absence of the concept is not simply because of Indonesia does not have a geopolitical vision but because of the wrong direction in implementing which one is the goal and which one is the means of foreign policy so if i'm understanding your critique of indonesia's approach to this war in your ukraine you're charting a, a shift from when indonesia's founding president sukarno pursued non-alignment uh, not aligning with either side in the cold war and a free and active foreign policy as a means to achieve goals like the integration of West Papua into Indonesia to the present day where you're saying being non-aligned being free and active has become a goal in itself rather than a means to pursue particular foreign policy interests and so through that prism having both Putin and Zelensky at the G20 leaders summit would already be the ends for for Indonesia because that had kept it at a i guess a, an equidistance between competing geopolitical blocks of countries if that's a fair representation of your argument could i propose a different understanding and say that earlier you've said indonesia's interests in this g20 leaders summit are to advance the economic interests of the younger conglomerates to open new markets for them and and so forth and to do that Indonesia needs all members of the G20 to attend the leaders summit that it is chairing. 
couldn't we see inviting both Putin and Zelensky as using a non-aligned approach, uh, not aligning either with the Western bloc or those who support Russia, but seeking a compromise to get everyone to the table so that Indonesia can pursue its underlying economic interests? It is a mistake. Zelensky or Ukraine is not part of G20. Why should Indonesia invite Ukraine? Uh, Rick, please uh, do not consider, if, if I'm not concerned about humanitarian condition in, in Ukraine, or I'm, I'm supporting Russia or pro-Russia. No. As an academic, I have to explain to the audience, to the public, that state foreign policy should serve its national interest. If Indonesia really non-alignment, why should Indonesia invite Zelensky? Indonesia could say that we have to invite Putin because we are the host, because this is the obligation, this is the duty of host country. If we do not invite Putin, it means we are we are aligned to the West. And, and now it, it seems that Indonesia really is standing towards, is tilting towards the West. Why should we explain our political position toward Ukraine? In, in the context of G20, Ukraine is not part of, of this forum. Indonesia has no very significant uh, interest to pursue with the Ukraine compared to Russia, for example. Uh, Indonesia has strategic partnership with Russia. And if other countries protest or threaten not to come, it's okay. Because Indonesia has to show its position is leader, not only host, host country, but leading country, uh, but the leader, the presidents, the presidency under uh, Indonesia's, under Indonesia currently, and it it should be explained to to the public that even if we don't invite Ukraine, we do not violate our non-alignment because we already say that we are not. Interest. We are. We are not a part of the conflict. We should not lean to each party. So, inviting Russia, inviting U.S., in, inviting others, pro or contra Russia, who are members of G20, is a must. But by inviting Ukraine, it sends a message that we are now leaning toward the U.S. And today, Jokowi left for the U.S. And, and on his speech, he, he said that he's going to talk about economy, talk about uh, stronger relations. He want to meet Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, want to meet other U.S. businesses. What does it mean? Indonesia inviting Ukraine because of uh, its own interest or because of the West press? <laughs> Sure, sure. And I mean, Jokowi's current visit, I guess that would be for the US ASEAN summit that's on this week. But I guess, you know, certainly one possible interpretation is that sort of Indonesia has gravitated towards the Western bloc, inviting Zelensky. But couldn't you also see it as Putin would be unhappy that Zelensky is being invited, the Western countries in that US bloc, if we think of it that way, would be unhappy at Putin being there, 
So in giving neither side all of what they want, Indonesia has managed to secure everyone's presence potentially at the meeting rather than risk most of the largest economies in the G20 boycotting the leader summit. Non-bloc is not a policy of pleasing everyone. Like what Sukarno did, Suharto did. Non-bloc means we do not want to be entangled by the interests of conflicting parties. And we pursue our own interests. Give me, uh, let me give an example. In, in, in 2021, August, Indonesia conducted Garuda Seal military exercise with the US. And if Indonesia was really non-bloc, why it did not do the same with Russia or China? <laughs> See, so, and, and, and at the same time, Indonesia was going to buy a large number of weapons from the US and NATO members. Uh, many, many scholars uh, talk about this in, in Indonesia last year. And my, my view is, uh, yes, if, if Indonesia is really non-alignment, it is okay for Indonesia to conduct military exercise with Russia without the US there, with China, uh, bilaterally with China, with Russia, or to buy Sukhoi from Russia, because we are, we are not tied by any blocks. Mm. But isn't that actually the current situation that Indonesia did look at buying, uh, making significant military purchases from Russia, but ultimately decided, for instance, in the case of fighter jets, to buy them from France? Yeah, uh, it means that we are going toward the West now. and It is okay, no problem, as long as it is really based on Indonesian interests. But the problem is, what are the weapons going to use? Buying super sophisticated weapons like F-35 from the US, for example. Does Indonesia really need it? I don't know. The government does never explain. The defense minister has never explained. What is our interest to buy such expensive weapons from the West? Does Indonesia need weapons from French, from US, because we are going to develop our maritime forces? While Indonesia is no longer global maritime forces. In doctrine. So this is very complicated. Unclear foreign policy ideas lead to terrible practices. So if one asks me, so what do you need to do? What do you need to do now is Jokowi, Prabowo, or the foreign minister, or, or who, whoever, foreign policy elites, they have to sit down and reformulate what is our foreign policy vision to be a global maritime fulcrum, to be the global digital economic player, to be the bridger of the Indo-Pacific architecture or, or whatever. There is no kind of this vision. And uh, uh, you know that will be a long conversation for Indonesia yes. and, and, yes. and one that I can't see it concluding prior to the G20 Leaders Summit, it'd be a, a long conversation also for us to talk through your ideas on, on what that vision should be and, and perhaps for another podcast episode. But, you know, just to, perhaps if we were to return to this challenge of the Ukraine war for Indonesia's presidency of the G20, 
We don't know, of course, whether either Putin or Zelensky will attend the Bali Leaders Summit, uh, but if both were to attend, do you expect some sort of dialogue or mediation on the war in Ukraine to be the dominant feature of the Leaders Summit, or will that be more of a side agenda to the sort of economic interests you mentioned earlier? No, because Indonesia has misused its non-bloc power. Its non-alignment policy has been misunderstood and mispracticed. Who will trust Indonesia? If at the UN, Indonesia always took abstain position, it is a power. It is an approach to Russia. Russia will trust Indonesia. Okay. Ukraine will also appreciate Indonesia because Indonesia shows it really are not entangled by both parties. But now, in a situation where Indonesia seems to be ambivalent, ambiguous, who will trust Indonesia? Although we can invite both and ask and invite them to talk, but what is our concept? Indonesia has no concept of mediating the war in Ukraine. You've mentioned if there were to be a, a dialogue between Russia and Ukraine, Indonesia would not be an effective choice as mediator. Can you envisage a scenario where Indonesia might invite another country to, to seek to moderate or mediate between Russia and Ukraine? It, it is a more disadvantageous option to invite other country because to mediate uh, warring parties, First, we have to be impartial. Indonesia has shown that it is not impartial enough in the conflict. Second, Indonesia must have a solution, not solution from the problem, but an alternative solution. And third, Indonesia must be supported by all parties. And, and I think Indonesia does not have uh, this point as well. So whatever Indonesia will propose uh, will not be feasible in, in, in the dialogue between Putin and Zelensky. I heard if uh, some foreign policy intellectuals are invited to decide what Indonesia will offer to Moscow and Ukraine, but I'm not convinced that Indonesian proposal will be accepted because Indonesia is not is not a player in in the Eurasian region. Even Indonesia used to aspire for mediating the Middle East peace talk. Indonesia has no diplomatic connection with Israel. So how could Indonesia do that? And in this very complicated political and geostrategic conflict in Eurasia, Indonesia is not a player. Indonesia is an outsider. So no no uh, enough modality to propose anything and written to my previous argument so what is the benefit of inviting ukraine sure sure no, and certainly you're not convinced by the the purpose being to ensure no all of the members attend but you know putting that aside you've laid out the economic interests that indonesia brings to the table in this g20 summit with the, I guess, complication of the potential presence of, of Putin and Zelensky, does this impact at all upon Indonesia's ability to pursue that economic agenda? Yes, and if I may suggest, 
if Jokowi or in or Jakarta wants G20 to be an economic forum, just make it an economic forum, sterile of geopolitical intrusion. Indonesia has the rights to do that because it is hosting the next summit. But the problem is Indonesia has made uh, a blunder <laughs> since the conflict began two months ago. And if, if at that time Indonesia was really non-aligned, I think there, there is still an opportunity for Indonesia to sterilize G20 from any geopolitical intrusions and make it really an economic agenda for Indonesia and, and, and other middle powers uh, in, the, in the grouping. Sure, sure. Now, Wahyu, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. And thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today on Talking Indonesia. It's been great and it'll be a great guide as we look forward to this Leaders Summit later into the year to see what outcomes come from Indonesia's presidency of the G20. So uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Dr. Igede Wahyu Wichaksana, Senior Lecturer in the Department of International Relations at Universitas Erlanga in Surabaya. Talking Indonesia returns on 26 May with my co-host Tito Ambio. Until then, as always, you can find the entire archive of Talking Indonesia episodes for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.